Harry, you're a great wizard, you know. I'm not as good as you, said Harry, very embarrassed as she let go of him. Me, said Hermione. Books and cleverness. They're more important things. Friendship and bravery and... Oh, Harry, be careful. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas Hock and I'm a Ravenclaw. My name is Christian Schneider. I don't know, probably also a Ravenclaw. And there's two more people here. Who are you? Hello, I'm Annika Brockschmidt and according to Pottermore, I am a Gryffindor, although I'm very squeamish. I'm Dennis Schultz and I do physics. As you might have noticed, this is not your usual Outside of a Dog episode. There's not only two more people, these people also have their very own podcast, Science Pie. So this is the first official crossover that we do. The Outside of a Pie, or Science of a Dog, or whatever you might I like call outside this. Outside of a Pie. Outside yeah. of a Pie. It's nice. It's good. It's good. I like my dogs outside of pies as well. Yeah. <laughs> And we have help from our two friends from Science Pie here because we have not just one or two or three or even four, but actually seven books for you in this episode. This episode, we're talking about the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling. Be warned, though, if by some chance you should not have read the books or seen the movies, in this podcast, we will be discussing plot details of all the seven novels. If you don't want them spoiled, then maybe come back when you've read them. So what are these books about? Harry Potter is an orphan boy who grows up with his horrible aunt and uncle, as well as their spoiled, bullying son, Dudley. On his 11th birthday, he finds out that he's actually a wizard, that he will attend the wizarding school Hogwarts from now on, and that his parents were killed by a dark wizard called Voldemort. Voldemort disappeared when he tried and failed to kill Harry as well. The seven books follow Harry's seven years at school as he tries to prevent Voldemort's return to power. In his first book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Harry must not just come to terms with his new situation, but also prevent Voldemort from getting his hand on the Philosopher's Stone, which would give him eternal life. In the second book, called Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, an ancient monster attacks several Hogwarts students. Again, Voldemort seems to be involved. In the third book, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, in the summer before Harry's third year, Sirius Black, one of Voldemort's closest allies, escapes from the wizarding prison Azkaban and tries to kill Harry. The fourth book, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, tells the story how Harry, in his fourth year, takes part in a wizarding competition held between three international magic schools. But the competition is used by Voldemort to kidnap Harry, and through a dark ritual, he comes back to his full power. In the fifth book, Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore, while Harry's account of Voldemort's return is officially ignored, the headmaster of Hogwarts tries to keep Harry and his friends out of the line of fire. But they're determined to help prevent Voldemort getting access to a secret weapon with disastrous results. In the sixth book, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Dumbledore teaches Harry that in order to defeat Voldemort, he will first have to destroy several Horcruxes, magical objects Voldemort has created to preserve his life. Together they try to find the first object, but upon their return to Hogwarts, they find the school has been attacked by Voldemort's followers and Dumbledore is killed. And finally, in the seventh and last book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Voldemort takes control of Hogwarts and the government, so Harry and his friends go into hiding, seeking out and destroying Voldemort's Horcruxes. In a final confrontation at Hogwarts, 
Harry and Voldemort finally face each other again, and their battle decides the fate of the magical world. So before we start discussing these seven books, why don't we tell the listeners what our relation to them is, so that they also get to know Dennis and Annika a bit better. What is your Harry Potter story? How did you discover the books, and what do they mean to you? Well, I think I was about 10 years old when I read the first book. I was also a very squeamish kid, so when I read the first book, I was so terrified of Fluffy that I actually put the book into an old suitcase and um, sat on it and then left the book sitting in there for about a month. I got better um, and actually managed to finish the rest of the books without locking books into suitcases. And I became slightly obsessed with it. I still am, I guess. So basically for me, Harry Potter is kind of my, my childhood. I think I read just about one or two books when I was a child and then I somehow just stopped. I don't know. How? I don't know why. There, there How is no... that possible? What happened? <laughs> It, it must have been me just, just being abnormal while I was stopping the books, but or I you, did. Or you were a very early hipster, going against the crowd. Um, and then what I did was uh, preparing for an, uh, for an interview we did in Durham. Um, before that, we actually uh, I actually listened to all the books uh, read by Stephen Fry. In my case, I actually had that kind of hipster reaction in the beginning. Everyone was raving about the books, and I thought, no, I don't need that. I read better young adult fantasy, so I don't need that Harry Potter thing. But then when the fourth book came out, my family started reading them and I started reading them and I was also hooked. The first four books I read in a week and I really, really loved them. So I was a fan at that time. But when the fifth and sixth and seventh book came out, each time I was a bit less enthusiastic about <gasps> them. So I may be something of a lapsed Potter fan, if you could call me that. that By the way, this is the last ever episode of Outside of a Dog, since I will refuse doing a podcast with Christian now. For me, Harry Potter really shaped my life more than anything else, I would say. In the summer of 1998, little eight-year-old Jonas refused to read books because he thought they were boring. And my sister took me to the library and said, you have to take out one book that has no pictures in it, that is not a comic, and you have to read that if you still don't like books, that's okay. And she presented me with several choices, and I thought, well, the one that sounds least stupid is this one about the magic school, at least that sounds like something that could be entertaining. <laughs> and it was amazing. I fell in love with that book. And that same summer, luckily, the second one was published. I literally cried because I was so happy when I got that. And ever since then, I was hooked. Uh, the fifth one was the first one that I read in English because I wasn't willing to wait for the translation. So Harry Potter got me interested in literature, got me interested in English literature. I probably would not be the person I am right now if it hadn't been for Harry Potter. So J.K. Rowling is to blame. Christian, you said one of the first things you wanted to talk about is Harry Potter as fantasy. So yeah, of course, it has wizards, it has dragons, it has an epic struggle between good and bad. Obviously, this is fantasy. Why should it not be? Well, on the one hand, this is not a fantasy world, no Middle Earth, no Narnia. This is England. But on the other hand, I would agree, actually. I mean, Harry Potter is definitely fantasy, and it is probably one of the first books to introduce young readers to fantasy. It, I think it has kind of taken over the position of Tolkien's works in that degree, that if you become a fantasy fan, probably the, one of the first things that made you that is Harry Potter, basically. It's a magical version of England, but many of the aspects are really taken from British culture, British society. Hogwarts is a magic school, 
but it's also a boarding school, just like many other boarding schools in Britain. And I think that is actually part of its success. It's not the magic, it's not the fantasy world aspects that make these books the phenomenon that they are. It's, I think, the characters in this setting. And that is a very clever thing to do, I think. There are is a whole tradition of boarding school stories in British literature. Pupils come back every year and there are always these fixed events, exams, bullies, school dances and so on. So to use that very archetypical plot structure and then add trolls and dragons and magic. I think that is definitely part of the success of the whole thing, of the whole series. So it's fantasy plus school. And school, that's something everyone knows. And fantasy, that's something everyone has. And yet, Rowling kind of changed that genre. Because, for example, in that kind of genre, the, the bullies usually are the stupid ones, working class. And when we look at Harry Potter, the big bully is Malfoy, who is an aristocrat. I actually found it quite surprising that uh, I, I remember reading the books as a child and perceiving this whole world of Harry Potter as a completely artificial world. I, I thought this this system with schoolhouses and, and all that, that was so not connected to, to my experience of school. And then I, I went to visit uh, Annika in Durham. And um, actually, I noticed uh, this is actually the school system. That, that's not some sort of, of magic variation of a school. It is actually school. Yes. Well, of course, it helped that um, part of the scenes, I think especially in the courtyard in the films, were actually shot uh, in the courtyard in Durham Cathedral. So it kind of helped the visual aspects of it. When I was reading the books first, and I was reading about this house system, and I was completely caught up. I was like, this is amazing, I wish we had that, and so bad that this, that this isn't real. And so then I um, spent half a year at a school in Edinburgh, which was a very posh, private, all-girls boarding school. So it was the complete experience. And they had houses! <laughs> I was in a house, I was in the crappiest house of all, we never won anything, but they had houses. They had house competitions and you could collect points. That was amazing. I was like, this is real. It, it was similar for me when I spent three months at a British school, uh, which was not a very posh school, in Cornwall. Uh, it was a real feeling of coming to a Harry Potter world, even though it was a school building from the 70s, so the visual aspect really didn't fit. <laughs> and I felt like I was in a little magical world, a, a little more magical world at least. Uh, which it, it also helped that the family I was staying with kind of reminded me of the Weasleys. Aww. <laughs> a bit chaotic, but very nice. Aww. But at the same time, as Dennis mentioned, for many German people reading the books, this could as well be a fantasy world. And I would wager to say that for most of the international audience, even for the British audience, it's the same thing. Because the house system, for example, is something you mainly find in exactly those kind of posh public schools, for example. And it's kind of interesting, at least, that Hogwarts seems to be more modeled after schools like Eton or Harrow than after your normal comprehensive school. So the school that is supposed to be a kind of connective element to the young readers of J.K. Rowling, it's a very, very elitist model of a school. It might just as well be fantasy to go to Eton just as much as but to Hogwarts go to Hogwarts. Have fees, do they? 
No, and Hogwarts is much, much more inclusive, obviously. But we have uh, Justin Finch-Fletchley, for example, tells, I think, Harry and Ron in the second book, I think, that he was on the shortlist for Eton before he got the the letter for Hogwarts. So if you take him... But then there's also Colin and Dennis Creevy, who are also muggle-born, and their father is a milkman. Which is at least more working class, but it's also very old-fashioned British. And obviously there are girls in Hogwarts, which would never happen in Eton. Obviously, Rowling pays a lot of attention to details such as presenting a great variety of different ethnicities, class backgrounds, muggle-born and not muggle-born pupils. So that is very different from an elitist model. But still, I mean, you only get in per invitation. So it's, hmm. it's, it's basically, it's, it's a completely elitist system, but based on different standards than the traditional school. Exactly. Thing. We're already sort of getting towards the direction of the politics of the series, which is a very interesting topic as well. I think the series has admirable politics, which basically teaches the readers not very sophisticated ideas, but be nice to people. Don't be prejudiced. Don't think less of people because somebody tells you so, because they're muggle-born, or because they're non-magical, or because they're a house elf. Why should anyone have a problem with the politics of the Harry Potter series, I would say? Well... We mentioned there's a sort of elitist nature about Hogwarts. And I think, as Dennis has said, about the whole magic system. This is a society of very powerful people who basically live in secret. The only person that has contact with them from the muggle world is the prime minister. And from the scenes that we see of the prime minister interacting with the minister of magic... He has no idea who he's dealing with, and the Minister of Magic likes to keep it that way. So there's a power asymmetry, you might say, between the magic world and the muggle world. And that's something I generally didn't like, even back then when I read the books, that you have such a potential to help mankind. And there's sort of an explanation for that in the books, that, oh, people always hated magic, the witch hunts of medieval times and so on. So it was better to work in secret to help humanity in that way. But if you think about it, that is kind of a, a lame excuse, I would say. I think the first reason that Hagrid actually gives why they have to be in hiding is, well, the muggles would always want us to take care of the problems, wouldn't they? And yeah, maybe they would. Problems such as cancer, you know, you can sort of deal with that in the magic world. So reluctantly, I have to agree that, yeah, maybe the wizards could be a bit nicer to the muggles. Yes, and also when we're talking about social forms of social behavior, what I found very interesting is that although Harry Potter kind of teaches those values like friendship and loyalty and all that stuff, that you still have moments when even the, the main characters, which are supposed to be the heroes of the story, for example, Hermione, when she's talking to, I think it's Lavender Brown about the um, centaur teacher, and Lavender Brown is very excited about this, and then Hermione says, well, he's a horse. It's not a very nice thing to say. And... And at that moment, I thought, well, oh, this is Hermione who's saying this. And yeah, but people go through phases. Yes, but I mean... Children that, uh, are mean. Yes. You should know that. Excuse me. <laughs> you, yes, I, I was a teacher. You worked for, as a teacher. <laughs> yeah, I know. But no, I, I, I actually, I kind of liked that because it wasn't too idealistic. It was more realistic. It wasn't like, for example, if you look at how 
the the basically the golden trio treats Neville in the first book. They get nicer towards the end, but they're not very nice to him at the beginning. Oh no no no! Actually, just re-listening to the audiobooks read by Stephen Fry ever so beautifully for this uh, podcast, I realized how nice they are to Neville in the first book. They constantly encourage Neville to stand up for himself. The very first time Harry meets Neville, he thinks about how horrible it is how people treat Neville, and he remembers how he was bullied at his old school because uh, Dudley, his cousin, was such a horrible bully and intimidated everyone into not being Harry's friend. And he helps him. Yeah, but they don't let him in. They, but, but they constantly encourage him and tell him, Neville, you have to stand up for yourself. Neville, don't let them push you around like this. And then in the end, he, of course, stands up to them. To them, yeah. So, and he's rewarded for that. He's taught that that's the right thing to do. So I think um, the, the shoe really doesn't fit when you say that they're being mean to Neville. Well, they're not being mean, but I think it's sort of a, a kind of a, an in-group thing going Definitely. on there. There's a class divide between especially Harry and Hermione, who seem to be, as you said, the, the heroes, really, of the whole thing. I mean, many people have commented upon the fact that actually Hermione might be the better hero for the books, because Harry has a certain tendency to be very irrational, very wrathful. Um, yeah, because he had an abused childhood and he had horrible experiences in the first 10 years of his life which made him kind of angry. I can see why. Definitely. And I mean, that adds to him as a character as well. I think but, it's more interesting if yeah, you have a kind of a true. flawed hero than, than when you have a, like, a knight in shining armor figure who's always in control. Um, and I think that is a thing Rowling does really well, those characters with flaws that you identify with, but you sometimes also think, oh, what, what are you doing? But in general, obviously, there's still very clear separations between, for example, the Golden Trio, as you call them, and the rest of even Gryffindor. There's a great difference between Gryffindor and the rest of the houses. Slytherin never really gets beyond the description as the evil house. They're described as ambitious. And in the later books, Rowling takes great pains of describing Slytherin pupils as a bit more than just the villains of the piece. But yeah, it doesn't really work, I think. So the black and wide description of this school society and also the, the magical society in general is still something where you think it could have been even more of a complex society that's not just elitist and good because it has to be good. But I think the world that she creates is immensely complex and the society is as fucked up as our society is. So yes, there are these elitist elements to it, but it's generally commented upon that that's a bad thing. And we don't know what the Wizarding World looked like after the end of the seventh book, really. And I think Harry and his friends and all the characters in the novels will have worked towards bettering that society a lot. That's the kind of people that they were set up to be. Yes, and especially I think it's in the uh, the fifth book. The Sorting Hat has um, his new song, which he sings, and where he talks about how they have to be um, united uh, to stand up against Voldemort. And um, Hermione says, after Ron says, well, I'm not going to be friends with the Slytherins. And Hermione says, well, that's actually what it is about. And I think in the end, I think Hermione got this much, much sooner than Harry and Ron did. So Harry basically takes time to the very, very, very end of the book where he tells his son, it's okay if you're being sorted into Slytherin. But this idea is there. It's just, well, Harry and Ron are a bit thick when it comes to that point. The teenage boys, in other words. Yeah. We've already lauded Rowling for her ability to create complex characters. Even her heroes are not just knights in shining armor, but they are real characters with their flaws. But Harry is actually not just any kind of hero. We have another quote for that. 
Voldemort tried to kill you when you were a child because of a prophecy made shortly before your birth. He knew the prophecy had been made, though he did not know its full contents. He set out to kill you when you were still a baby, believing he was fulfilling the terms of the prophecy. He discovered to his cost that he was mistaken when the curse intended to kill you backfired. And so since his return to his body, and particularly since your extraordinary escape from him last year, he has been determined to hear that prophecy in its entirety. So Harry is not just the hero of our story, he's the hero of the magical world. He is destined to vanquish the Dark Lord or to be killed by him. So you might say that this is just the most tired trope in the fantasy genre. Harry is the chosen one, and therefore he has to win, of course. But I think the Harry Potter books really add a new twist to that. Um, Annika and Dennis, when you first read the books, did you think, oh, of course Harry is going to win because he's the chosen one, or did you find it more complex? I was really scared that he was going to die, actually, because the sort of name of the chosen one is sort of forced upon him, and it's not something that he actually sees. So he's not like a, I don't know, like a King Arthur who knows his mission and is kind of the confident hero. And Harry needs a lot of time to sort of grow into that role. And he starts off as the complete underdog. And he is, and actually you can see that with his name. We did an episode on names in Harry Potter, actually, because Harry Potter is sort of the most generic name you can you can muster. Yeah, Harry is, I think, if I if I looked that up correctly, it's, it's at least in the top 10 of boys' names during the time when Harry Potter was written. And Potter is not as common, but still quite common in one area of, of Britain. And actually, this prophecy is ambiguous. It doesn't say Harry Potter is the chosen one. It just says a child will be born that will have the power to vanquish the Dark Lord, Voldemort. And then Voldemort makes a choice to go after Harry and to try and kill him. It's made a point in the novel that he could just as well have gone after Neville Longbottom, their friend at school, who was born around the same time. His parents also defied Voldemort, so all the terms of the prophecy would have applied to him as well. But... Voldemort chose to go after Harry and thereby marked him as his equal, thereby he set up a connection between the two. That is a very important plot point through several of the novels. Uh, for a long time, Voldemort cannot kill Harry with his own wand because their wands are connected. If, in fact, that's what the entire series sort of boils down to, that Voldemort cannot kill Harry, really, because part of him is in Harry. So Harry is not destined to be the chosen one. He's made the chosen one, I would say. And that's a really clever subversion of usual chosen one tropes. Well, I beg to differ. I think, of course, Harry is the chosen one. Of course, he will win against Voldemort. Um, to Were you sure about that? I was sure. I really? was really, really sure of the, all of the time. The only thing that I kind of wasn't sure about after that prophecy was really, is J.K. Rowling going to kill him or not? Because that's the thing. I, I was sure he was going to win. But the question is, would he have to do some sort of heroic sacrifice to... I was actually, yeah, I was pretty sure he was going to die. Yeah. And in the process of winning. And well, he did. He does. He just comes back True. to life then. True. Yeah. And, I mean... Like someone else. Aslan. Yeah. yeah. But we don't have that whole Christian crap going on in Harry Potter, do I'm we? really glad about that. Actually, amongst Potter fans themselves, the very ending, the epilogue... 
of the Deathly Hallows is well, that, kind of a controversial topic. You mean that those last couple of pages that some people say their edition had by accident, but it wasn't in mine. I certainly have never read it, and I don't know if it's existence or content. <laughs> it does exist. It does exist. No! And no, it doesn't. You could argue that if you leave that out, as some people apparently do, you could say, okay, maybe Harry didn't survive. Maybe there's no grown-up middle-aged Harry Potter to continue the legacy. And maybe that would have made his hero's journey much more fulfilling. There are some interesting twists to it. The parallelism between Harry and Neville, that's really a good idea. But yeah, I mean, in the end, we've read that before. Well, and also the theme with the prophecy. You 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 hear a prophecy and exactly. you make it come yeah. true yeah. by trying to fight it. And that's a very common theme in, I think, fantasy in general. True, but still it's not presented that the prophecy has to come true. It's just presented that people make choices and that is what shapes their life. There's no external agency shaping their ends. And therefore, I think the Harry Potter novels really have a view on life that I would agree with, that our destiny is not written, that of course some things are beyond our control, but that ultimately it comes down to our choices and that we are responsible for our choices. And you said that Harry sort of saves the day on his own in the end. He doesn't. He absolutely doesn't. He relies on his friends to help him, not just Ron and Hermione, but whilst he's away hunting Horcruxes, what does Neville do? Neville fights the Death Eaters. He sets up a resistance group in Hogwarts, and lots of people join him. And then when it comes to the big battle of Hogwarts, who's the one to destroy the last Horcrux, Voldemort's snake, Nagini? It's not Neville. Harry. It's Neville, Neville with Gryffindor's sword. So that is Neville saving the world, essentially. So it's not just Harry. It might seem so because the books are told from his point of view, but when you actually look at what people do, all the other people do loads of things. And that's good. That's very, very important. And it's also the point Harry makes in the fifth book, when Ron and Hermione try to get him to teach them Defense Against Dark Arts, where he says, I might have come until this point, but I've always had help. I wouldn't have lived if I didn't have help. And that's absolutely true. Also, Rowling is very good in making figures neither black or white, but actually have lots of shades of grey. For example, Dumbledore, the headmaster of Hogwarts, who at first seems like the all-knowing, all-wise, great, wizened old man who can do no wrong. But over the course of the books, we, we find out that Dumbledore does misjudge people and situations sometimes, that Dumbledore does make mistakes, and that Dumbledore is a very manipulative figure who thinks that he knows what is best for everyone, but actually he's wrong quite often. And that has disastrous consequences. It actually ends in his own death as well by the hands of Severus Snape, a man that he trusted. As we then find out later, yeah, actually that was arranged because Dumbledore was dying anyway. But still, Dumbledore is not this great shining hero that he was set up as. She subverts her own characters very cleverly and that makes them a lot more real than just the great bearded wizard who can do no wrong. Yeah, Dumbledore basically dies because he can't resist the temptation of power because he's, he slips on the ring, the Horcrux. And that's basically what sets off his death, which he then kind of modifies and plans to his advantage, but still. Also, Dumbledore actually alienates some of his most valuable allies, Harry and his friends, in the fifth book. 
The fifth book is often called kind of boring because it's drawn out very long. And it's all about that because Dumbledore doesn't take Harry and his friends seriously, really. He thinks they're children, we should keep them out of the war. And he tries to solve the situation with this prophecy that Voldemort wants to get his hand on with only the adults. And then Harry and his friends get impatient and they decide to hop on broomsticks and go to the ministry where the records of the prophecies are kept because they think that they know Voldemort is trying to get it. And as a matter of fact, he isn't. It turns into a disaster. The adults have to come and save them. And Sirius, the guy who broke out of prison in the third book, actually turned out he was a good guy. And Harry's godfather and the one parent figure he had left dies. So it was Dumbledore's refusal to let Harry and the other children help. It was him underestimating them that created this catastrophe. But Dumbledore also alienates Sirius, because we hear in the fifth book that Sirius doesn't get to participate, he's bored, he's locked inside the house. And I think Sirius is actually, because you said he's a good guy, it's a very interesting question, I think. Because I think... I will I, just... Before you yeah. speak on, I will inform you that in uh, in primary school, my friends and I had a list of which Harry Potter who, character who was. And in that list, I was serious. So speak on. Speak okay. on. Okay. I will speak on. Slightly terrified now. But I will be brave and speak on. I actually think that I like Sirius, but I think I like him because he's the only father figure that Harry has left. Because if you look at how he, for example, how he treats Creature, he has a lot of weaknesses. He's very arrogant. He's irrational. But he doesn't treat Creature badly because of anti-house elf bias. In the fourth book, he says that house elves deserve our respect. He treats Creature like a piece of shit because Creature reminds him of his family and he has a disturbed relationship with his family. True, and yet he brings on his own death as well because he alienates Creature and that's what it, what eventually kills him because Creature betrays him to Voldemort or to the, to the other parts of the family that he feels that are loyal to him or that have been nice to him. Maybe that is a good thing because I always felt a connection to Sirius as well because he is, yeah, as you said, he is maybe one of the characters that is most understandable in his irrational decisions. He has been unfairly imprisoned in Azkaban for such a long time. He has to live in hiding, and yet he manages to be, yeah, the one father figure that Harry has without having to look up to him too much. Like, he has to look up to Dumbledore for the most part. And the mistakes Sirius has, or the mistakes he makes, are really mistakes where you can understand where he's coming from. So the death of Sirius in the fifth book is, in my opinion at least, much more devastating than the much-talked-about death of Dumbledore in the really? sixth. Yeah. With Dumbledore, I basically almost had a feeling of gratification. Really? Yeah, because I thought, okay, he's had his run, now he has to die to let Harry finish oh, his, his story, basically. With Sirius, it was tragic. That was really hard. That, that did hit me. And that was actually, both deaths were spoiled to me. And with Dumbledore, I was kind of like... Well, okay. I had, yeah, exactly. I had thought as much. But with Sirius, I was really angry. Like, what the fuck? Can we maybe talk a bit about Voldemort? Because he is the big villain of the books. Oh, definitely. We, when we talk about the heroes, we also should talk about the villains. Shall we get another round of Butterbeer? Yes. <laughs> because we have two such lovely guests and seven books to discuss, we've actually split this episode. So come back the day after tomorrow on Boxing Day, where we discuss life, death, and where you also find out what our favorite Harry Potter novel is. With imagination, everything is possible. With what? 
Imagination. Our new sponsor, Imagination. Though <laughs> so actually, you know with what everything is possible? With Squarespace. It's an easy drag and drop system that lets you build a great website without any coding. <laughs> you will never have to go to the post office again. Yes, stamps.com. We sponsor podcasts and Rush Limbaugh. Oh, I just want to... <laughs> Maybe you should have uh, taken the service of Blue Apron. They send you exactly what you want to cook. Stamps.com. Do you like to lick things? <laughs> this might be for you. Lamps.com. You will never have to go to the lamp store again. Tramps.com. Do you like to lick things again? <laughs> Trams.com. Do you like to lick trains? <laughs> Hands.com. Do you like your hands? <laughs> Do you like, like licking your hands? Are you a dog? <laughs> no, I'm a male chimp. <laughs> Are you a creature that was assembled by, uh, by a scientist and was only given scissors for hands? You need hands.com. <laughs> All I'm thinking about now is rhymes for stamps. No, it's okay. We'll... we'll... Clams. Clams. <laughs> Clams when things get fishy. Do you like to lick things? <laughs> we just say that with everything. <laughs> HarryPotter.com. You like to lick things? <laughs> Do you like to take out your wand? There is that gag on Tumblr. Any yes. sentence in Harry Potter replace the word wand with dick. <laughs> Harry, po Harry waved his, his dick, dick again until a milky white substance came out of the end. Red sparks came flying out of Draco's dick. dick. Oh no, Ron said, my dick. It was snapped almost in half. I used tape. <laughs> Look, mum and dad bought me a new dick. <laughs> Oh, this is a very special dick. <laughs> I remember every dick I've ever had. <laughs> There's a very strange connection between the <laughs> dicks. So... Shall we get back to discussing this, actually? Maybe. Harry Potter. Mm. Who's, who is Harry Potter? Mm. Me. <laughs> we have a very special guest here today. The boy who lived himself. Uh, you're a wizard, Dennis. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, we're so talented.